Everybody find your place in Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll look at chapters 3 and 4 this morning, but as we open the Word of God together and stand in honor of reading His Word, I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 4 because they kind of give us a feel for the, right in the middle of what's happening in Nehemiah. The message is titled, You've Got This. Anybody ever told you that? You've got this. And you're like, well, sometimes people tell me that, and I really don't think they know what they're talking about. Well, we know that the Word of God is true, without error, and God knows what He's talking about when He says, you've got this. Found your place, Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's start with verse 1. It says, when Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews for his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down the stone wall. Listen, our God, this is the prayer of Nehemiah, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. So, verse 6, we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working, or some translations say the people had a mind to work. They stayed at it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouraging word from Nehemiah. Lord, I believe that under the sound of my voice this morning, there is perhaps a father, a mother, a child getting ready to go back to school, someone embracing a new career path. They need to hear the words, you've got this. They need to know what it means. And Lord, I pray that we learn from these principles in Nehemiah something we can apply to help us to be the Christian, to help this to be the church, and to help us to be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. You know, when Oliver Cromwell, you might know his name, you may not remember, he was Lord Protectorate of England, Scotland, and even Ireland. Uh, Historians tell us that somewhere around the 1630s he was converted to uh, Christianity, even though he had an outward form of religion, that he had a, a genuine relationship that started about that time after meeting some Puritans. As uh, After being a military and political leader, he finds himself as Lord Protectorate and had to deal with a problem. There was a, a shortage of silver, a, a shortage of currency in, in Europe, and of course, uh, they relied heavily on making the silver coins, and so the money uh, kind of backed itself up in that day. And, and so he put together a committee, and he said, I want you to go all throughout the region and see if you can find us some silver we'll, uh, that we can turn into coinage, that we can turn into currency, and, and we can that way distribute it throughout the land. And so when this committee came back, they said, there is no silver that we can get our hands on except in our great cathedrals, in our great 
churches around the land, there are statues of saints made of silver, of the purest and the finest silver that's been crafted into these statues of saints. And his answer to this, which may not have been so well received by the churches themselves, he said, melt down the saints and put them into circulation. (laughs) Think about that for a moment. Now, the church didn't want to hear that, but think about what maybe the church doesn't want to hear today is a prayer like that. Father, would you melt down your saints and put us into circulation? If there's anything that a pastor, a leader in the church, someone who's trying to disciple and lead people to faith in Christ wants to do, it's melt down the hearts of the saints that we might be moldable and put and, and made and conformed to the image of the Son of God and then put into circulation, put to work, put into this world, not inside the walls of this building, but in our community, in our state, and in our nation, making a difference. And so that's a pretty good prayer to pray, right? Melt down the saints, put them into circulation. Nehemiah was good at that. He had been a political statesman. Now he's a spiritual leader as well. And he's going to put the saints into circulation. He's going to put them to work. And they're going to make a difference because of the leadership of Nehemiah. Now, you'll also discover, as we saw in the first couple of chapters of Nehemiah last week, that there's going to be some overlap with the book of Ezra, some principles of life, principles of leadership, principles of, hey, let's do a great work for God. Uh, Remember, in Ezra, it had to do more with the temple and getting the Word of God back in its place, and now we're getting into the walls and and defending and building uh, uh, the kingdom, doing a great work for God. And the people of God needed to hear a reminder along the way, hey, you've got this. You can do this. This task is not too big for you. Now, I know that some of you are already saying, because you're theological students and and in the back of your mind, you're saying, Pastor Robert, really should have titled this, God's Got This. I mean, if he were spiritual, and he didn't want to kind of promote some kind of humanistic version, he would have said, God's got this. And you know, we know that. We get that. We know God's got this, and God is omnipotent, and God is omniscient, and that we are nothing without him. But he sovereignly desires to work through you and through me. We know that God's got this, but sometimes we use that as a cliche to say God's got this, and then we become passive and do nothing. And God desires us to join Him in the work. And so we're reminded throughout Scripture. You take one of the favorite passages, Philippians 4.13, which we often fail to read in the context of Paul's struggle, saying, listen, I know what it's like to go through good times, and I know what it's like to go through bad times, Man, I I can be content whatever state I am because I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Notice, he avoids both extremes there. He doesn't say, God can do all things because He has all strength, which would be a true statement. He doesn't make a false statement of saying, I can do all things because I have the strength in and of myself. But the balance is, he says, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength, recognizing that when God works, He desires to work in and through the lives of His people. And He wants to tell us, because of my grace, because of my power, 
You've got this. See, when you understand what Paul understood in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me in the life I live in this body, in this flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, loved me, gave himself for me. So yeah, I've got this because of who I am in Christ. Or Philippians 2.13, and we know 2, uh, 4.13, but 2.13 that he, he is doing his work in us. God wills and works within us according to his good pleasure. And because he's at work in us, we've got this. So let's make three more observations to add to what we learned with last week with the, the prayer of the broken heart and then putting that prayer into action. If we get busy for God to begin to serve him, we need to be reminded that we've got this. Now, here's what Nehemiah's leadership brought. We'll see that the people of God, first of all, this morning were organized for efficiency. Nehemiah's leadership helped to organize them for efficiency. And so if you look back in chapter 3 to kind of frame what we're reading in chapter 4, you see that there are some prophetic and practical implications to how he organized them to build the wall. Everyone, I'll repeat that, everyone was given a responsibility. It took everyone. And in a church and in a family, if there's going to be success when it comes to seeing what the ultimate fixer-upper, remember this, what we're seeing in Ezra and Nehemiah, God doing a rebuilding work, if we're going to see success, everyone has to do their part. And Nehemiah helped organize everyone for efficiency. So in, in chapter 3, if you look at what's going on around the wall, let me just comment briefly on some of the, the things that we see. For instance, all of the gates that are mentioned in verse uh, the first verse we see the sheep gate when he says Elijah the high priest and his fellow priest began rebuilding the sheep gate. Now as we work counterclockwise and as Nehemiah works counterclockwise of putting everybody in position, you'll see that it has prophetic implications that relate to preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming of Jesus Christ and how he would work about establishing his kingdom. So the starting point being the sheep gate where animals were brought in for sacrifice reminds us that Jesus would walk through that gate on his way to a cross. The starting point for restoration, the starting point for rebuilding would be that we all come to a place of humility and brokenness before Jesus Christ and we come to him through the cross by the blood of the lamb first. And so they started at the sheep gate and that's in place. And then he makes sure that he has people building around the fish gate in verse 3. Those uh, first disciples, remember, were all fishermen. The sheep gate is where people would bring fish into the city from, uh, and be prepared to bring them to market to sell them. And so we're reminded not only of evangelism with the sheep gate, but discipleship with the fish gate. The old gate is mentioned in verse 6, reminding us that the old is made new. It was the gate through which you pass from the old kingdom or the old part of the city into the new part. And we're told that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, all things are becoming new. Then there's the valley gate sometimes. And by the way, there's a, a long stretch of the wall before you get to the valley gate, which I think points out the fact that God is gracious and sometimes he allows us to journey and strengthen ourselves in the faith a little bit before we begin to go through those 
deep valleys. Unfortunately, there's another long section before you get to the next gate. That valley that we go through can last a long time, but the psalmist said it well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So our spiritual journey will take us through valleys. Then you come to the dung gate. Verse 14, that's where the refuse, the garbage, the dung, (laughs) everything was removed through that gate from the city that reminds us that even in our spiritual journey, we are always in a process of sanctification. We're always allowing God to cleanse us and make us more like Christ as He begins to reveal again and again those things in our lives that are not like Christ, and He chips those things away and removes them from us. And then we come to the fountain gate, and then the water gate, which reminds us of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. As far as the fountain gate, Jesus would say to the woman at the well, you had asked me, I would give you living water, welling up into eternal life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then the water gate, we'll see in chapter 8, the Word of God being expounded there, but the water reminds us of the Word of God. Jesus washes us with the water of His Word. Husbands are told to model that in their love for their wives as Christ loved the church, washing her with the water of the Word, the spiritual leadership with the Word of God. Then the horse gate is mentioned, the military gate, reminding us that we have spiritual warfare that we're engaged in now that we're in this, and we're going to see this as soon as we get right back into chapter 4 here in a moment. But we come to the the horse gate that was used by the military as they would go out for warfare. Then the eastern gate that many of you are familiar with because the eastern gate represents that gate through which Christ will come when He returns, that Jesus is coming again and we're to be living our lives with the end in mind. You see how all of this is being structured in such a way, even prophetically, the last gate, the inspection gate that He mentions where foreigners would be directed with their visas, where everyone would have to register. Literally, the Hebrew there means the gate of registry. It was a picture that there's a judgment day that's coming, that one day Jesus will return, there will be dividing of the sheep and the goats, and if our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, we'll spend eternity with Him. All those who have had a relationship with Jesus Christ, who put their faith and trust in Him. See, what all of this building is doing is emphasizing evangelism and discipleship in a prophetic way that they may not have even grasped at that time. So there are the prophetic implications. And as a church, and I believe even as a family, and I'll go a step further, even in your own life, we gave all the men one year a book on Father's Day called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald. And in that book, he talks about even organizing your own life. So your personal life, your family, the church, your career, all of those things should be organized in such a way that emphasize what we're here for, evangelism and discipleship and a spiritual journey with Christ. We need to go back and evaluate all of those areas. Every ministry in our church should be evaluated. And is it helping us organize for the purpose of evangelism discipleship, and empowering that spiritual journey. So those are the prophetic implications. But what about the practical implications of this? Remember we saw last week that the wall was in in shambles, and so Nehemiah was brokenhearted because the people of God 
and their way of life would not be protected. And we said even their religious freedom was not defended if the walls were not in place at that time. And so practically speaking, it just reminds us that to do a great work, it takes teamwork. Everybody, they needed to be organized for efficiency because everybody had to have a place on the wall. In a church setting like this, it is so important that you understand that every single member of this church needs to find their place on the wall. We need to be about God's work, God's business. Yes, it all revolves around evangelism, discipleship, and helping people and equipping people for their spiritual journey. You may say, well, my role is not as important as the pastor's role. It's not as important as the minister to family's role. It's not as important as the worship leader's role. And listen, if there is a weak place anywhere on the wall, you find out that that role is just as, invi- is just as valuable as the pastor's role or anybody else's role. We all have to find our place on the wall and build according to God's plans. That's why we spent time this spring looking at spiritual gifts and personalities and passions and all of those things. It was to help you discover where you fit best in the kingdom's work so that you find your station on the wall and say, I'm going to man that station. I'm going to stand and I'm going to do the work God's called me to do on the wall. So they all had a responsibility. As we read a moment ago, they had a mind to work. They were ready to get after it. Trinity family and others who may be listening in. We had a few technical difficulties with our recording on Sunday, and we felt like the message was so important that I wanted to take some time to um, outline that which we had uh, lost in the sermon on Sunday, uh, so that for those of you who are listening online, uh, you can kind of get the whole message. So if if you're wondering why I'm switching to more of a, a conversational tone now, um, that's why, and uh, just bear with me as I share a few things that, that I think are so important in, in understanding what we're learning here in Nehemiah about leadership and all the challenges that come with that. Um, as we looked at being organized for efficiency, that first point, uh, there was a prophetic aspect of that, but there's also what I would call the practical aspects. Um, leadership is being networked here along the wall and I wanted to make three observations that uh, of so many things we could have gotten into here in Nehemiah chapter 3 but but three that I wanted to especially point out Uh, first of all was the mention in verse 12 of these daughters that were serving uh, along with all the others working on the wall. It says in verse 12 that uh, beside him Shalom, son of Haloash, ruler over half of the district of Jerusalem made repairs, he and his daughters. And so I, I think sometimes that people may think that, um, that when it comes to leadership within the church, those of us from a, an evangelical conservative background Uh, expect men to step up and and we don't apologize for that and at the same time God made us male and female in his image and we all have responsibilities we all have a place on the wall and I love seeing these daughters of Zion step up to the work and 
they, they kind of remind me of Deborah, who said, I will arise a mother in Israel. And so, uh, while, again, I don't apologize for asking men to step up and be the leaders God has called them to be, I don't ever want that to make it sound like women are any less valuable, though our roles and responsibilities may be different and varied. We're all part of a team. We're all of equal value in the eyes of God, and we all have responsibilities to impact a generation. And so uh, I just wanted to make that observation concerning the daughters of Zion. Also, I want you to uh, keep in mind that uh, that these families are working together. As you As you follow around the wall here, you will discover that families are working together for the cause. And then, finally, I wanted to point out that there were some that were missing out on this great opportunity. They were missing out, it seems, because of pride. Now, we might miss this in some translations, but in verse 5, we read that beside the Tekoites, or beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors lift a finger is a, a kind of a, a translation that's making a, an interpretation of a Hebrew phrase that has to do with a willingness to bend the neck or to bend at the shoulders. In other words, these nobles, because of their position, they were not willing to humble themselves and to get involved in the in the work like they should. They would not bow to someone else. Uh, giving uh, orders or providing leadership. And and the point I want to make here is that we will never be the leaders that God has called us to be if we're not being the followers God has called us to be. Not only followers who humble ourselves under the headship of Christ, the lordship of Christ in our lives, but also the followers that we're called to be when God places spiritual leaders in our lives. We all have to be accountable to somebody. And we need to be so respectful and willing to roll up our sleeves and go to work when there are spiritual leaders in our lives that are providing some direction for maybe a a church or a a home, an organization that we're a part of. And so uh, let's not be like these nobles who are not willing to humble themselves and bend the neck lift the finger to be involved in the work and, and miss out on the well done of God and the joy of being a part of something that is so incredible. Uh, the, the next thing after we look at the uh, organiz- being organized for efficiency, and this is second theme is a theme we see again and again and again in Nehemiah, and this, that, that were, they were opposed by the enemy. And we find those familiar names of Sanballat, and Tobiah here in uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. It says, Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. He became furious and he mocked the Jews before his colleagues and powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, 
he would break down their stone wall. This mockery is a type of persecution. Oh, I know that here in the United States and in many places, we're not persecuted and and we're, our lives aren't threatened on a daily basis like our brothers in places uh, like India and China and certainly in the Middle East and in places where they can lose their lives for taking a stand. And sometimes when we are threatened like that, we, we bow up and, and uh, we dig a little bit deeper and, and we seem to be willing to die for our faith. Often, however, where we don't take the stand we should, it's when we face the kind of persecution we do experience here in the States, and that is a lot of mockery, mocking our standards, mocking our service, mocking our sacrifice. Notice Nehemiah prayed these imprecatory prayers, and let me remind you, we're living under the, the age of grace as New Covenant Christians, and so we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is the devil himself and all of his demonic cohorts. And a, and a worldly system. It's not the people that we're called to reach. Uh, but look, we need to pray with a great passion. He says, listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or their sin or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. We need to learn to pray with a passion like that, even against the enemy himself, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And as a result of them uh, facing the enemy here, it says, when Sambalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that they, the, the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious. They all plotted together to come and fight Jerusalem throw it into confusion. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. And that kind of reminds me of what we saw in the first couple of chapters. There was prayer, but there was also action with the prayers. You know, We need to uh, put feet to our prayers. We need to walk boldly forward, believing that as we pray, that we're walking with God in a process here. It says in, in Judah, the, the, it was said, the strength of the laborer falls or fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said they won't know or see anything until we're among them and kill them and stop the work. And when the Jews who live nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, this, this mocking continues, everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And I made an inspection. I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember, great and awe-inspiring Lord, and fight for your countrymen, your sons, and daughters, your wives, in your homes. Remember what you're fighting for. You're fighting for your families. You're fighting for the kingdom of God. You're fighting to be a part of something that the enemy wants to destroy. Man, let's stand and fight. I'm reminded in Revelation chapter 12, 11, when the 
serpent of old, that dragon, the devil himself rose up against the saints. It says they, speaking of the, the saints of the living God, that's you and me. It says they overcame him by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb, and they did not love their lives unto death of the lamb. They put their faith in what Christ had accomplished on the cross, the blood of the lamb. Their personal relationship with Christ, the word of their testimony, they, they loved not their lives. They were committed, willing to die for what they believed in. That made them unstoppable as the people of God for the glory of God. Let's live that way. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, the Bible says, steadfast in the faith and so let's stand believing that god wants to do something in us through us and that he is greater than any enemy that we would ever face and let's pray prayers with passion believing that rebuking the enemy rebuking the devil in his courts in the name of jesus christ not bragging because of our own power our own ability but but uh, bragging because our names are written in the lamb's book of life bragging on the one true living god saved us, not on ourselves. And then finally, not only were they opposed by the enemy, they were outfitted for execution. To be outfitted, to be outfitted means to be armed and to equip. Whether you're talking about a soldier, a hunter, a hiker, you need to be outfitted. You need to be both armed for any attack and you need to be equipped to do the task with the right tools that are before you. I can't help but think of what Peter said in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. He says, we have everything we need for life and for godliness in Jesus Christ. And so um, you begin to look at verses 15 through 29, summarizing the closing of this chapter. Listen to how well they were armed and equipped at the same time sword in one hand trial in the other it says when our enemies realized that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it <laughs> I love that. God had frustrated their scheme every one of us returned to his own work on the wall from that day on half of my men did the work while the other half held spears, shields, bows, armor the officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall, the laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound rally to us there our God will fight for us again you see that uh, beautiful balance of God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility as he says we have to rally together there and our God will fight for us so we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out at that time I also said to the people that everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. 
and I, my brothers, my men, and the guards with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing, they were staying prepared for battle. They were outfitted for execution. They had everything they needed. You know, if you if you always retreat from work when you're under attack, the work will never get done. I hear people say that from time to time that, well, I'm just going through a lot right now. And if we wait till we're not under attack to advance the cause of the kingdom of God, the work of his church, the responsibilities that we have personally and as families for the glory of God, if we wait till we're not Facing the attack of the enemy, we will never get anything done for the glory of God because whenever we seek to do something for Him, we are going to be under attack. So we, like these Israelites here, under the leadership of Nehemiah, need to learn how to fight with a weapon in one hand and work with our tools in the other hand because we have been outfitted for execution. Now, as a pastor, I can't force a church to walk in victory. As a as a Father, I can't force a family to walk in victory, but I can provide the tools necessary, and as leaders, we should all do that. Ephesians 4 reminds us that the, the responsibility of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not to go into ministry or be a pastor so that you can do all the work of the ministry. You should certainly lead by example, but it's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We have a great team here, and I'm so grateful for people like Pastor Ben and, and for Jeff and for all of our teachers and leaders and, and deacons and, and various ministry team leaders and, and all of them doing a wonderful job, not only uh, the, with the work that they're called to do, but they are serious about equipping teams in the church and, and networking that ministry. And so not only are we equipping in the church, as a father, I'm responsible to equip my family. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 says, train up a child in the way they should go to discover their bent and what they're called to be about in life and give them the tools next necessary. You can't force them to be victorious. You can't make their decisions for them, but you can certainly make the tools available and teach them how to use those tools the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, the biblical principles, the, the spiritual armor we read about in Ephesians 6. We can make those tools available and teach people to walk in those tools so that we don't grow weary in well-doing and we don't give up just because the enemy's attacking. We, we fight and we move forward by faith, believing that we have both the armor that we need, that we have the weaponry that we need, that we also have the tools that we need to execute. We are equipped to do the work. And so I think so many people today are, are kind of throwing in the towel on God. And the, the, the going gets tough, and so they get gone. And I want to leave you with this word. I, I pray that someone who's listening to this, that may be at a, at a place of giving up, maybe whether it's with your family, maybe it's a, a calling God has on your life, maybe it's a ministry in a local church somewhere, you, you just feel like saying, I quit. And I want to challenge you. Take that out of your vocabulary. Replace the words, I quit, with hand me another bread. 
replace the words I quit with hand me another brick, get back in there. I'm not saying we won't need those times of retreat. But even Jesus, a great while before day, he went out to a solitary place. He got along and he prayed. And it wasn't long that he was into that before Peter came looking for him and said, we've got, we've got so much to do. And, and maybe Peter learned from Jesus the importance of, of those many retreats where we've got to just get along with God and, and refresh. But we can't stay away from the battle and we can't stay away from the work. We've got to find out how to get along with God long enough each day, each week, and each month, each year to get equipped and armed execute and then stay in the battle and watch what God wants to do remember he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ever ask or think and I love my family I love my church family but I don't want us to settle for anything less than getting in on his best I pray I'll stay in the fight for their sake God bless you let me pray for you Father I thank you for those who are listening online I thank you for those who heard this message this past Sunday and I pray that it would take deep roots in our lives and that we would be sensitive and obedient to the leadership and empowerment of your Holy Spirit I pray this in Jesus name